So you guys, we are going to be digging through a very decently long chapter here today. We're going to get all the way through chapter 28. So uh, we're going to move at a decent pace to try to get through it. But last week, I just want to kind of rehash, we looked at the court area of the tabernacle, if you guys remember. We learned a lot, didn't we? We learned that we can really never come to God without first dealing with our sin. Because remember, before we looked at the, ta- at the outer court of the tabernacle, we had to deal with the brazen altar. We had to deal with this altar area. And so you don't get past the entrance. You don't get into the, the tabernacle of the Lord without dealing with your sin first. And isn't it true? Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't hear our prayers. It doesn't mean that God exists only inside of this one little special space. What I'm talking about is before you're a Christian, you're praying and God hears your prayers, but you're not in relationship with God. There's a difference, right? So it would be kind of like if you're calling somebody on the phone and you happen to pick up the wrong number sometimes. That might be a bad analogy because it's never the wrong number to call God. But it's almost that way where you might have a conversation with someone, but there's, there's a lack of relationship there. Does that make sense? So when we come to Christ, when we deal with our sin, when we, and what I mean by deal with our sin, when the sacrifice has been made for our sin, right? Because we're never done sinning, unfortunately. I wish we could be like, we got this, we're good. But no, we need Jesus, right? They needed a spotless lamb. They needed some form of sacrifice that was going to, to be the way that they paid for their sin. But they had to put that on the altar of repentance. There had to be a satisfaction for God's judgment, and that was paid for by blood. And the reality is, this is one of those moments that some people I've said, they've said to me, they're like, well, why did it have to be blood? Well, I don't know. Ask God. <laughs> you know? I, I, I mean, seriously, like, it's his choice what that looks like. I mean, we can make, I could go into a lot of things. Blood equals life. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we know that the Jewish people even saw, and that I think it makes sense why it was blood. But it's not my choice. It's God's choice. It's the choice he made. His blood, or I'm sorry, Jesus' blood, I should say, was the perfect sacrifice. It was our final atonement. We don't need to continue to kill sheep. Tonight, we're actually going to look at some things within the actual priestly garments, and we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that even the priestly garments uh, spoke of the imperfection and the need for something that God would accept, because even these spotless lambs were not perfect lambs, right? Even they sinned. They bit somebody in the butt, or they did something wrong. (laughs) Before they were sacrificed. I'm teasing. I don't know what that was. But you guys, tonight we're shifting gears a bit. We're going to be digging in tonight to the garments, specifically of the high priest. And then we're going to look quickly at the kind of all the priest's garments. And I think there's some fascinating, eye-opening application for us tonight. Not a ton, but there's, there's some stuff here that I think is interesting to look at. Uh, so let's dig in. Verse 1 says this in chapter 28. Says, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Am I taking it? So these people, the first thing I want to point out, you guys, is this Aaron and his sons, were they called because they were Moses' relatives? No. Like, was Moses just like, look, I'm all about some nepotism, so Aaron, you got it. Your kids, you're set up for life. You're good. This is your job. No. God said to Moses, here's what you're going to do. Aaron is the one I've set aside. His sons are the ones I've set aside. And I need us to hear this, you guys. They were called by God. They didn't take it upon themselves. And I say, 
and I need us to hear this, I don't think there's anything new today. A calling to ministry can only come from God. My prayer is, is if there are ministers out there that are not called by God, that we will quickly see that and they won't have anybody following them. That's a pretty clear sign that you're not called, right? Sadly, that's not always the case, though. But there are those people, even today, I believe, and I believe that God did this with me, that he set apart that said, hey, this is what I want you to do, and I need you to hear this. The work of ministry, if it's being done with a right heart, is not a glamorous work, and is definitely not a popular work. We see examples of this all throughout Scripture, and even today, right, of people that are called by God, that their ministry might not look that great. Do we ever think about the prophet Jeremiah? This young guy who at least one time is recorded being like, can you just shut my mouth? I don't want to do this anymore. And then immediately after that, it's like, but I can't, right? Because he knew the calling he had on his life. So many times we see those things, but you know what else we see? And we see this all throughout scripture too. People that have these humongous followings after them, but don't say anything hard or challenging from God's word. Sometimes they don't even say anything from God's word, barely right? Here's, to me, what a clear sign of that looks like. Typically, their job and who they are looks very glamorous, and they're very popular. And it's not for me to say exactly who's called by God and who's not. That's not my place. But I know this, personally, the work of ministry is not glamorous. And it's definitely not popularity. If you're looking for popularity and you are truly called to ministry, well, then you are dichotomously, di- diametrically opposed to one another in your way you're thinking. Because you're going to tick off probably at least half of the congregation every week, right? Or, or a group anyway. You're never going to make everybody happy. If you're looking to be popular, well, then you're picked the wrong profession if you're not called to it, right? It's not glamorous, you guys. Do you guys know what a pastor's job is? Do you know what the high priest's job was? It was to be the one that was representing the people or representing God before the people and vice versa. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But the reality is, you guys, is that this work is not ever going to be glamorous. You're the chief of the servants. As a matter of fact, I believe if you're truly teaching God's word in the calling that you've been given, you will never be popular to everybody because you will never say exactly what everybody wants to hear. Verse 2, let's keep reading. It says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, listen to this, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine twined linen. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the stuff they needed for the tabernacle too, right? At least parts of it. So God was telling Moses that for the high priest, he is He's put his spirit inside of some of these craftsmen, and that's who he wants to build these garments. They were to make these garments, and they were going to be holy garments. They were going to be 
set-apart garments. They were going to be garments that only were for the high priest. These garments were going to be a clear sign to everybody, you guys, that, that the person that God had ordained into this position was meant to be a constant representation of God's holiness as well as being a walking sign of God's glory and beauty, right? That's what he said, that you're going to make these things for glory and for beauty. The other thing we see, though, too, is this. That as the high priest walked around and wore these things, God also, these garments were holy. This office was holy. And this office was due honor and respect. Notice I said office. We're going to talk more about that, too. So it's clear to everyone, you guys, that this ordained office was an elevated position. And I need us to hear this. Aaron himself was not special. It's not going to be too many chapters from now when we're going to read Aaron be a total liar and a sneak. Matter of fact, some people even think that during this whole chapter, during the time that God, we know this, while Moses was up on the mountain speaking, this was happening. Now, was it happening specifically when he was talking about Aaron? We don't know. But at, but at some point while Moses is up on the mountain, that's when Aaron starts doing all the funny things down below. That's when the people are like, we want another God because our God is, I don't know what happened to Moses, right? And so what did Aaron do? Go give me your gold. I'm stealing whoever's turn it's going to be to teach that week. Go give me the gold. He puts it in. But then to make matters worse, like at least be a man and admit, yeah, I made, a, I made a mold for a calf. We put the gold in and burned it and made the golden calf. No, he is such a pansy in his leadership that what's he do? He's like, oh, no, I put in the gold and out popped out this calf. Right. I don't think so. I need us to hear this. There is nothing special about Aaron. There is nothing special, you guys, about any person that God calls to be a pastor. Hear that. We're just a bunch of fools called by God. You need to hear that. But you also need to hear this, because I don't want you all to think that this whole message tonight is me just tooting a horn and making you guys sound like you don't respect me enough. That's not at all the point. There is a level of respect and honor that should go with the position of a pastor, the position of pastor. Much like in the military, you guys, I don't know if you know this, you salute officers, right? Anyone that served in the military learns this very quickly. You're saluting not the human being in the, in the, in the, in the uniform, you're saluting the rank. Now, so do you get it? So if a colonel walks by, that colonel might be a womanizing, you know, gambling freak that like is the worst human being on the face of the earth. But you still salute that man. Why? Not, you know, that person in the uniform. Why? Because you're saluting what's on their shoulder. You're saluting the, the fact that they're an officer, and you're not. It's, to me, it's sort of the same thing here, where you're, you're respecting the office that the person is in, but you're not. It doesn't necessarily equate to having to respect the person all the time. We're going to talk more about that. There's nothing... Well, let's talk about it now. I keep saying we're going to talk more about that. Well, let's talk about it. <laughs> to me, you guys, when I was saluting people, there were officers that I didn't know that I just saluted their rank. But I had plenty of commanding officers that I had a lot of respect for as human beings. Good Christian men. Good men that were doing their best, and women, that were doing their best to like be good people. And guess what? When I saluted them, I saluted their rank. Yeah, because that's what I was mandated to do, but I saluted them as a human being, because I'm like, I respect you. I salute you. I'm thankful that you're the person in charge of me right now. Do you get it? 
I pray, you guys, that in this church that I live and act in such a way that hopefully you can respect the position and me. (laughs) Do you get it? Like, that's my prayer. I think that should be the prayer of every pastor. But is everything I do absolutely full of respect, like respectfulness? No. You know why? Because I'm a human. I will let you down at some point. I will say something wrong at some point. You're like, you do all the time. (laughs) Do you guys get the point that we're driving home here? God wanted these garments not for Aaron because Aaron was something special. God wanted these garments because for all of the people of Israel, he wanted a representation of the fact that this office, this position was meant to be something more than any other human was cap- than any human was capable of, of filling, and yet at the same time, God put us flawed human beings in these positions anyway. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So as we dig through this, we need to kind of keep thinking about that. And I also, again, just want to point out these people that were going to be building these garments. He placed the spirit of skill within them. God was giving these ho- the Holy Spirit to these people for this time to fill this specific task. He was going to use spirit-filled folks to build the breast piece, the ephod, the robe, the coat of checker work, and turban, and the sash. And then again, one last thing. Notice what threads are being used? The same ones that made all the curtains. The same ones that were the inner la- part of the inner layer colors of the fine linen that was inside of what made up the, um, the inner layer of the tabernacle. Verse 6 says this. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. And it shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall make two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of the names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, a lot of gold. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. So guys, I want to say that the rest of this chapter now is just going to be dealing specifically with just all the different pieces. And then near the end, we're going to look at like the, 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 the sons of, of Aaron and, and their, their garments as well quickly. But we're going to start off here by looking at the ephod. We have a picture. This picture, my brother back there was, you see that? Same picture. Yeah, so I took this out of a book that I have that I bought electronically because I really like the book. It's, um, can you put up the book quickly to show everybody? If you guys, you can buy this at Walmart. It's, it's by Rose Publishing. It's Bible charts, maps. It's got a ton of great information in there. I would highly recommend for everybody, if you guys want, go to Walmart. It's there a lot of times. You can find it. It's, it's a, not that expensive. It's got a lot of great information. It's a great study tool. 
Um, and so I have it electronically, and that's where I got that. That's also where I got the tabernacle pictures before they're in there as well. The ephod, you see the red arrows I drew? That's the ephod. So that kind of whole like vest thing, that like apron basically kind of thing is, is the ephod. Not, not the square spot on the front. That's the breast piece we'll talk about in just a second. But the ephod, if you notice in this, in this depiction, essentially is kind of meant to kind of look like the curtains in a sense. Same color scheme, right? Same type of yarn, same fine twine linen that's used. And then notice those stones that are supposed to sit on these shoulders, onyx. Now, there's some debate there. Some of these stones that we're even going to talk about, I didn't dig this far down in the weeds. We could, we could spend three weeks on just this one chapter and keep going through and digging through different parts of it. Um, some of the names of the tribes that most people believe are, are they're different orders, and there's all sorts of things. But some of this is speculation because it's not specifically laid out. We do know this. These six were in birth, or, birth order, right? We read that. But the, the thing is, is that some people think the onyx stones were actually white stones, and it wasn't the onyx that we think onyx was, based in the Hebrew. We don't know. In this picture, it looks like they're essentially black stones, like we would think of onyx stones. At the end of the day, does it really matter? No, it doesn't. <laughs> they had names engraved into them. They set in gold filigree, basically gold sockets to keep them stationary. They were kind of like melted in there, so it was like it, they weren't going anywhere. They weren't going to just fall out and be like suddenly lost to time kind of thing. They're... They were in his uh, garment, and they weren't coming out. These colors, you guys, were super beautiful and ornate. And this is just a depiction of it, but when people are living in tents, living in the desert, can you guys see why? I mean, we're going to talk about each layer of this thing, but can you understand why when Aaron walked around that there was something different about him? God was definitely making a point, right? Right? This garment was an apron. It had no sleeves. On the shoulder straps were these onyx stones with, with the names of the six tribes engraved, or the 12 tribes in two different stones, six and six. And in a real sense, you guys, you need to hear this about the onyx stones. The idea of this was that the high priest would bear the entire people of Israel upon his shoulders before the Lord. Not that it was his responsibility entirely, but the idea was is that he was the only one that was ever going to enter into the most holy place. He was entering in with them on his shoulders. He's like, I am representing this entire tribe of Israel. It's a clear indication, you guys, that he was working for the Lord on behalf of them. But I need you to hear this part too. High priest was also working for them on behalf of the Lord. Nothing's changed today. My first job as a pastor is to minister to the Lord by getting in his word and doing my best to try to be a minister to him in the sense that I am saying, Lord, pour into me the things that you want to speak through me. Does that make sense? And I'm also ministering and working for you guys because my heart is, is that hopefully I'm serving you guys well, but I'm also here to try to serve up what the Lord has for you to chew on. Does that make sense? So there's a two-way thing that is kind of a go-between. Now, I don't want you to hear Catholic priests. I don't, we're in the new covenant. So like, let's not get too down this rabbit hole. Aaron was in the old covenant, right? And it makes sense that he was literally, physically, the one that was working on their behalf before the Lord. He was the only one that was going to go in there to do that, right? So, so in a, really, a very real sense, he was ministering on their behalf before the Lord 
not in the same way that I am. Does that make sense? So I'm not trying to draw the parallel too tightly, but do you guys get where I'm going with this? There's a lot of parallels to today that I think sometimes in the modern day church, we've, we've lost a little bit. We either go one way where we glorify pastors to the point where it's ridiculous and we turn them into something like a celebrity. And sometimes everybody treats a pastor like you're just the same as everybody else. And it's like, that's true. I'm a same, same stupid human we all are. But the office isn't. Does that make sense? And I, so I think there's something to be learned here. So we see here that the high priest, specifically what we're reading here, Aaron, think about this. You got these two stones, probably had to be fairly big to have the engravings on them, right? I'm sure they were not super tiny stones. There's some weight there. Isn't it interesting to think? This is the first part of the garment, but this is just a sense of like, there's weight on his shoulders. There's something here that he's got a constant reminder when he looks to his right or to his left that he's like, man, Lord, you've given me a very large responsibility here. Keep reading. Verse 15. Going to read a big section here. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it. In other words, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span. Its length and a span, its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree, those sockets. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold, excuse me, in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in the front to the shoulder piece of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece and on the inside edge next to the ephod on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them to the front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod. And it seems, uh, and it seem above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by, breast by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the, Ur the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on, the, on his heart before the Lord regularly. Let's look at a picture of the breastpiece. So interestingly enough here, this picture to me is wrong. Why? Well, do you remember what he said right in the very beginning? It should look just like the ephod. It should essentially be the same pattern, the same design. So whatever the ephod looked like, all that color should have been also on the breast piece. 
This was a cloth breast piece. When it talks about a span and all this and that, this was like a piece of fabric that was folded in such a way that it became a square and a big pillowcase, essentially, for lack of a better way of putting it. It was like a square pillowcase. It had an opening in the front. Why? Because you stuck the umim and the thumim in it. By the way, I always thought that was urim and thumim. No, I learned that the pronunciation is urim and thumim. They go in there. They said in there. We're going to talk a little bit about that. There's some thoughts there, but we really basically, I'll tell you what we, what we know, nothing. We really don't know much about them. This is a piece of cloth, though, that was designed to be a square case, a square pillowcase, or I don't know, that's probably a bad way of putting it, a square something that had a pocket in the top, basically. It was designed in that way. We don't know much about the, the two things that were put in it. We do know this. Those two words in Hebrew mean lights and perfections. You guys ever hear that before? Some scholars think, and this one makes sense to me, but again, I have no idea. Like, we're definitely not going to argue about this if you think something different. Good for you. A lot of people think that it was two different stones, one light and one dark, and that they were some sort of way that the God would use this, that the high priest would maybe pull one of them out, and, which, and they were the same size, same shape, same everything, so that whatever one got pulled out was the answer, that that was God's judgment. It was either a yes or a no type thing. It could have been that. I also read some other scholars that believe, and this is a sort of high, widely held thing, is that they were two different types of diamonds, one one color, like a yellowy diamond, and one like more of a clear diamond, and depending on which one, that God would actually project an image of a Hebrew word that would say something. Again, this is getting a little bit down a rabbit hole because I'm like, really? seems easier to just have a black and white stone to me. But I have no idea what it was. We'll find out when we get to heaven. We don't really know. There's, there's a few mentions in Scripture. We're taking a pretty high pass of this chapter. Like I said, we could take three weeks, seriously, just talking about uh, even the stones that are coming up, the 12 stones on the front breastplate. There's different names that are used that we read in different scriptures. So I would encourage you guys, if you're interested, this is a really amazing thing. Just the breast piece. Study the stones. Go dig up what's there for the stones. There's a lot of really cool stuff that we're not going to dig into tonight, but there's a lot of interesting questions that it brings up why and what's up, and there's some great answers there for that. And I'm sorry we don't have the time to dig into it all, but that's what we know about the umim and thumim the Urim and the Thummim, which is basically nothing. It's all speculation. <laughs> we don't know. However, we do know a lot more about, about the breast piece itself. It was designed, again, in the same fashion as the ephod. So it would have essentially blended in. And I think it's intriguing that that's the case, because what we see here on this picture isn't that, right? We see very clearly the square. And I think it's the artist's idea of trying to make it clear, like this is that, right? But I want us to process this thought. It blends in, and what sticks out? These colorful stones. Do you know what I mean? So the pocket almost becomes just part of it, you know, this whole thing, so that the stones themselves are the thing that pops off almost a little bit more. And I think that's intriguing. So there are these four rows of three each, these 12 different stones. And you can read there what all those are. Again, Lots of debate. We don't even know what some of these stones are. Some of these stones we do know, but many scholars believe that the things that we would say modern day is this, is just like that onyx stone. It's not. It means something totally different. 
a lot of these stones, they're trying to figure out based on the area they were in, that makes the most sense that they would have found those stones from the area. So they're like, well, well that probably is this and probably is that. And so there's, there's some interesting things. And even the colors of the stones, depending on how deep into the weeds you get, can mean things. The reason I didn't really touch a lot of it is that, again, sometimes we can get into some pretty quick speculation on this stuff. But it is intriguing to think through and, and look at if, if that's your heart, if that's kind of your jam. This square pocket, you guys, it says about a span. It's about eight to 10 inch square that's set on the front of the high priest's chest. And if you notice, they made a big deal. God made a big deal about being like, hey, these chains, there's going to be these four gold rings on the tops and bottoms and the corners, essentially. And they're going to be latched in in such a way that this is going to remain here. This was not, you know, the new modern messenger bag thing that the, that the young adults like to carry, right? This wasn't like an over-the-shoulder bag that could like slide to the back or go to the side. No, this was kind of locked in by the gold chains in such a way that it was never moving here. I mean, it could move, but it wasn't moving so far that it was outside of what? Three different times they said it. It's going to sit upon Aaron's heart. It's going to sit on his heart. That's where it was meant to be. They were held over the heart of Aaron, these 12 stones, You guys, it gives us a picture that just like these stones that are on his shoulders put some weight on his shoulders and he was there to do the work unto the Lord before the people and also to do the work unto the people before the Lord both ways, this was a clear indication that the high priest needed more than just a person that could do some work and had some some skin in the game in that way. No, he needed to love the people. He needed to care about the people. They needed to constantly be on his heart. And again... We could draw a parallel to a modern-day pastor. Unfortunately, there's way too many modern-day pastors that I wonder, based on their interaction with their congregation, how much they actually care about their congregation. Now, I say all that freely admitting that as we continue to grow, I'm having a harder and harder time getting to know people in our congregation. But I can tell you this, and I'm saying this with absolutely zero uh, worry in my heart that I am lying about this or wrong about this. My heart is to know every one of us well. It's just that one human being and 250 people (laughs) gets a little strenuous at times to try to know that, but I try my best. Do Do you get it? But his heart was supposed to be for the people that he was serving. It wasn't enough to just do the work on behalf of the Lord. He had to have a love for God's people that he was doing the work on behalf of. Let's keep reading. Verse 31 says this. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it. Well, that's nice. Thanks, God. With a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and it sounds, its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. (laughs) Pretty hardcore. So let's look at this picture again. The blue robe 
on this picture is obviously sticking out of the bottom, right? Because the ephod would have covered over most of, a lot of the blue robe. But if you notice there, and I didn't draw the arrow down to that little part, but do you see how they have those little gold and then in between, they just picked one color. But basically, these would be multicolored. It would kind of look like, um, did you, you know, in the, did anybody, for all of you guys that were born in the 70s and know what I'm talking about, you remember my grandma had pillows that had those little pomegranates. They had the little like yarn things. You know what I'm talking about? Little balls, and they were all different colors. That's what I think of this. The little, they were like yarn balls, like a knot, and then it had all the hair of the yarn that was remaining, kind of, not hair, the yarn. No, not like a pom-pom. They were like a solid, I don't know, they were like a solid ball around maybe a styrofoam ball. I have no idea how they made the ball. Maybe it was all yarn. But then it had like all the remaining yarn just hung out the bottom. Like a tassel. But I have no idea if that's what this was like. But that's in my mind what I see. I'm just throwing out something, right? Or a pom-pom. But it wasn't a pom-pom. Let's not go there. That's weird. (laughs) To me. Let me clarify. It's weird to me. But we look at the robe. It resides under the ephod. It was to be all blue. It was basically to be kind of seamless. Right? It was to be one piece of blue fabric, and then they were to cut a hole in the top. But notice, this wasn't like, hey, let's just cut this real raggedy hole. No, take the hole and then sew it in such a way that you're reinforcing that hole so that it would not tear, right? so that it could go on and off and be very like a, a well-made garment. right? And that's the idea here. There was no way it was supposed to be able to be torn when it was being put on or removed. And then at the bottom, again, there were these alternating pomegranates of well-known colors, blue, purple, and scarlet. And I'm going to talk tonight about what colors mean here. Colors, biblically, you guys, these three specifically, and I, now you can go in your Bible and write this stuff down and maybe go back and look even at the other stuff. But here's the, here's the breakdown of the colors. Blue was meant to equal guidance, God's guidance. And that's a very important point because we're going to talk more about that when we get to the the turban. Purple equaled life. What else do we know purple means? Royalty, right? But spe- specifically in the book of Exodus, this color purple was really a representation of life. Remember, who was, who was royal in this moment? God and God alone, right? There was no king yet. There was none of that. So yes, purple did mean royalty, but in this specific instance, these colors were meant to be guidance, life, scarlet. Come on, y'all. What does scarlet mean? Blood, salvation. Guidance, life, and salvation. It's pretty beautiful. And in between each of these garments was a golden bell. And these bells, you guys, when he would walk around, they were just constantly ringing, right? You, couldn't, you just couldn't take a step without them ringing. And that was intentional. So there was this constant, like, tinkling noise whenever they were, he was going around. It was just like, you know, whatever. There were lots of angels getting their wings, I guess. Every, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> they allowed, and this is... I think important, and God brought this up, right, that, that, that they were meant to be heard. This wasn't just some fancy thing. This wasn't something that was like, oh, wow, listen to me walk, hear me walking around. Like, no, there was a lot of reasons for this. It allowed for others to hear the high priest wherever he was. And I need us to hear this. It says... God said that when he would walk into the holy place, notice we haven't even talked about the most holy place yet. We're just talking about the holy place, the place where all the priests were allowed in. But when he would go in before the Lord daily to do the tasks 
to make sure, supervise the tasks that were being done, the showbread being replaced, the menorah being refilled, those type of things, the oil being refilled in the menorah, which had to happen daily, right? And the altar of incense kind of being dealt with, all the things that were happening inside the holy place. Do you guys understand? He's walking in, these bells are ringing around, and what did God say? If he's not, the high priest was not wearing this uniform, this outfit properly, was not wearing it the way he should have, what was supposed to happen to him? He just croak. Let's go one step further. What about the once a year Yom Kippur when he would walk into the most holy place? Think about it. What happened before he was allowed to walk in? He had to make sacrifice. First for himself. He had to make sacrifice for himself. Then he would sacrifice for the people. Then he would go in and he would do the incense and then he would go into the most holy place after all that. There's a Jewish legend, we don't know 100% if it's true, that they would tie a rope to the high priest's ankle, right? When he would walk in, it's debated. We don't know exactly if it's true. It's a legend, so take it for what it's worth. But those bells were all still on his outfit, the high priest, when he would walk in to the most holy place. Those bells were there. If they heard the bells ringing, he was fine, obviously. If they heard a thud and there was no more bells ringing, if the rope's true, pull them out, (laughs) right? If it wasn't true, that's even more disturbing. But these bells were not just a symbol to the people there, but they were a symbol even to like everyone. Because imagine, you're sitting in here. There's bleeding of goats. There's doing all this stuff happening. There's all these things being sacrificed. Things are happening. They're there. They're, they're doing their stuff. Everything's happening. And then they go into the holy place, and you can still hear inside the tent that there's bells ringing here and there and doing this and that. It's a picture. Don't you see? It's a beautiful picture. There's this picture. And I need us to hear what I think this picture means. This picture of these pomegranates and the bells. I took this from David Guzik. First off, the pomegranates were a constant reminder of the obligation of the high priest to bear fruit. To bear fruit. The bells, you guys, were a constant reminder of his obligation to have a testimony of what God was doing. Now, we don't wear bells and pomegranates, right? Nobody? Can I just say, though, we also have the same obligation, don't we? We have an obligation. And I'm using the word obligation sincerely because I don't take lightly that Jesus said, go out into the world and make disciples. That wasn't like a suggestion. It was a command. So yes, we are obligated to have our testimony. To be ready in season and out of season to speak the testimony that we have. And I need you to hear this. Our testimony, you guys, is like those tinkling bells. It should be with us wherever we go. Wherever we go. Whoever wants to hear it. People can't argue with your testimony, can they? They really can't. Like, your life is your life. I mean, you could argue with me till you're blue in the face that Hare Krishna is the way to go. But my testimony about why I believe Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life isn't giving you an apologetic argument. It's giving you an argument from my own heart that I believe sincerely based on my life, on my testimony. And the reality is, you guys, is we are people walking in the Holy Spirit. Our lives will bear good fruit. They just will. 
as we continue in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's keep reading here. Verse 36 says this. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, or some translations might say holiness to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord, and it shall be on the front of the turban, a cord of blue. And it shall be on the front of the, tur- of the turban. And it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So you guys, let's look at the picture again. We're going to see the picture of this turban. That blue there, it, I don't know. I don't get it. The cord of blue seems to be essentially what was woven through the gold band to kind of hold the, the cloth, the fine linen of the turban to the actual, to the gold band that was kind of what set on his head, right? That was like the, the cuff of the turban. That was the thing that set on his head. And so I don't know that that picture's right there. I think that the, the blue cord seems to be like more maybe of a woven type of a thing to hold the cloth onto the gold together to make it one solid piece of headgear, if, that's, if you guys get what I'm saying. But that gold band going around the bottom would have what? Holy, holiness to the Lord or holy to the Lord written on it. This engraving and the gold band spoke very much, again, of the position of the wearer, the person that God had called into that position before the Lord to represent the people before God. And I need you to hear this. The position was deemed holy. The person in the uniform, yeah, essentially was deemed holy, but he wasn't holy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The position was holy. This doesn't mean that Aaron was more holy or better, but that the position that God had called him to was holy. The turban was fastened together with this cord of blue. Remember what we talked about. What does blue mean? Well, the gold is a sign of purity. We talked about that. Gold was meant to look, meant to be purity. This was something that he was placing on his head. He was like, look, God, I know me. You know me. I'm not perfect. I don't have this figured out. I'm not pure. I'm a sinful man. And yet here I am putting this, these, these clothes on these things that are a representation of the position that you've put me in. And I'm putting this on my head, and I'm like, God, you know I'm not a holy person, but Lord, I thank you, Father, that you're using me anyway, and that this position is a holy set-apart position. And it was woven together and held together with this blue cord, this cord of guidance. Do you guys see the picture? This sign of purity. The man who wore this turban with the thing set upon it that said, holy to the Lord. It's set apart. This office, this, this office of ministry to the Lord was set apart. And what was it all held together for? What covered his brain pan, his human brain? What covered all of where the representation of our flesh, essentially, to the Jewish mind came from? The Jewish mind, your guts, your heart, they were all important, and your mind. Those areas of your body to the Jewish mind were the areas where you, flesh, were the most. 
right? That's why even Paul's always talking about this idea of like cleanse your heart. Well, that word heart, a lot of times in the Greek was talking about clean your guts, clean your inner self, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's this concept of this happening up here and this happening up here. And I, I love the picture because here he had to put this on every day. Aaron, think about this. Moses comes down off the mountain, catches Aaron in a massive situation. Aaron lies about it. People die because of this whole situation with the, with the golden calf. All this stuff happens. And now Moses is like, yo, here's the deal. We're going to have these clothes made for you, Aaron, you freak. <laughs> and then every day he's got to put this thing on knowing exactly who he is. Holy to the Lord, set apart. And Listen, if I had to wear some special garb, I promise you, as a pastor, I'd be like, oh, Lord, why would you choose? Well, I'm telling you, every Sunday I get up here, every Wednesday night I get up here, I'm like, you've chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. You've chosen the most foolish thing to use for your glory and honor, and I don't know why, but I'm thankful. And so Aries Aaron putting this thing on, and it's held together with this Blue band is saying, it's almost like, God, you're holy. You've put me in this holy position. I need your guidance to be just poured into my brain. Because yeah. I've got a job to do that you've put me in. And I can't do it without you. This pliable and fine linen that made up the turban, that covered his brain, this blue cord that guided him towards holiness because he was entirely out of his depth in his own flesh. And then the other thing we read here is that we read about Aaron bearing the guilt, right? Did you see that? Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. What does that mean? It means this. Even if this gift was acceptable, even if they brought a ram or they brought a cow or whatever it was that they were sacrificing, even if it was, you know, a spotless lamb, or even if it was like, you know, they had picked the first, you know, the, the right lamb, they did it all right. Well, guess what, guys? This lamb still was not the final sacrifice. It wasn't the perfect sacrifice. And so what God was saying here is that even as they're bringing this imperfect sacrifice that, yes, may be spotless and may be the best they have, so they're doing everything correctly, what God is saying is that it's because of the high priest and the fact that here's this thing, that he's the one coming before the Lord with these things, that that was the thing that wiped away the guilt. That is what made these things acceptable before the Lord. Does that make sense? It's kind of an intriguing thing, isn't it? Because I think too often we get all wrapped around the axle, don't we? Oh, man, I've sinned again. Man, I've looked at porn for the nine millionth time. Man, I keep trying not to be so gossipy, and I, I caught myself again chewing on some juicy gossip or giving out some juicy gossip or whatever your sin is. And how often does the enemy beat us up and be like, oh, man, how are you going to come to the Lord again? And you could beat yourself or flail yourself or do all the things mentally, physically, whatever. Hopefully you're not doing that physically. But you could do it mentally or emotionally. You can beat yourself up pretty bad, can't you? You guys, they were there killing lambs, but what made it holy was the high priest. What we are walking in 
is not grace because we were so penitent in our sinfulness when we, when we repented. We're walking because of the blood of our high priest, Jesus, the final sacrifice. Do you get it? This is a picture. This is what God's saying. He's like, there's going to come a day where the sacrifice, the high priest, it's, it's going to be done with, and it's all going to be won, and it's going to be okay. Do you get it? But he's saying, this sacrifice, you're doing your best. You're doing it right. You're coming to me. But it's the high priest is the reason. That's the one I'm looking to to say, yes, I accept this offering. I accept this sacrifice. It was a constant reminder on the forehead of the high priest of the upward call to holiness before the Lord. And it was an upward call that he, every day as he put that hat on, that turban, man, Lord, I know me, but would you help me? Would you call me up into the things that you have for me to walk in? And can I say this? Think about this. Everyone that was in there sacrificing their animal that saw Aaron, they were looking right at that same sign too. And it was, so it was an upward call for their lives. Oh, Lord, here I am sacrificing again. Boy, Lord, I, I wish that I didn't have to. I wish that I could say that I was right in your sight, that I was doing the right thing all the time, but I don't. But it was this constant upward call. You guys, as we walk with the Lord, as we walk in the Holy Spirit in this walk of sanctification, can I just encourage you? The idea of sanctification is that you are here but that you're walking towards holiness every day, day in and day out, growing with the Lord and, and, and becoming clearer and cleaner image of who Jesus desires for us to be every day. Does it look amazing every day? Are you like, whoa, yesterday I, did, I robbed a bank and today, man, I don't ever want to do that again. No, it's usually not quite that drastic, is it? Man, you might go weeks and weeks and you're like, dude, I feel like this is totally eating my lunch. I can't even get past this one little thing. But can I just encourage you guys? The walk of sanctification is a lifelong process. So don't beat yourself up, but can I just encourage you? Listen, if you are truly seeking God, and if you are saying, God, I want more of you and less of me in my life, you are becoming set apart from this world in your actions, in your words, and in your thoughts. I believe it. Now, if you can look over the past whole year ago, and you are literally either the same person you used to be or you're worse, well, then, okay, we need to talk because I don't think you're walking out the walk of sanctification. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you're not trying. There's an effort involved, not you whomping it up, but you submitting your life to the Holy Spirit, right? That's the idea. And so here's the cool part. If you've not seen any change in your life, at all. Nothing is changed in your life. Ask yourself what you're chasing. And then here's an easy, quick fix, Christian. Start answering the upward call of the Holy Spirit in this walk of sanctification. It's not rocket science. Oh, you guys are faithful to come Wednesday night. I know you're all being sanctified. You're good. Verse 39 says this. You hear that in my shoes? I can't make it do it again. Okay. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. 
So all these garments mentioned, you guys, God is just making it clear. They're all supposed to be a fine linen. The sash itself is supposed to have embroidery on it. Uh, can we put up the picture one more time, Chris, just to see it real quick? We didn't really touch on it. Again, <laughs> it's meant to be a fine linen. What color? I don't know. But you see that there they made it gold to kind of make it stick out. But there was a sash to kind of hold all of this stuff together. And so all these things were meant to be made of fine linen. So let's keep reading. Verse 40 says this. For Aaron's sons now... You shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on the sons uh, with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So these regular priests, we'll call them, Aaron's sons at this point is the priests that we're talking about, were to have basically what, we're gonna, what we read about throughout Scripture is this, it's, it was essentially just a white woven fine linen coat, right? It was kind of like a robe or a coat. It was all one piece. And then they had a sash that was made of these same three colors, right? So that was their one kind of quote unquote fancy thing. That was the thing that really made it beautiful again. And and I just want us to think about it again, knowing what these colors mean and recognizing that when the people were walking through the front doors of the outer, you know, way into the tabernacle, those front curtains that were open, you guys, these colors were there. Whenever they're in there, they have the brazen altar. They have, we're going to talk later about the, uh, the place where they would wash their hands and stuff before they would walk into the tabernacle. But that front curtains that were at the entrance of the holy place of the tabernacle that only the priest could go through. But remember, guess what? Everybody that's in there was also seeing those same colors. There, this was this constant reminder the priests, when they were in there, were looking and they saw not just the colors, but the cherubim, right? They, God was making a very clear point, you guys. It's about him. It's about his glory, his honor. It wasn't about anybody else. They were obviously not as ornate as the high priest, but the clothes, you guys, were no less priestly and no less beautiful. These were not cheap clothing. They didn't go to TJ Maxx, right? This took a lot of effort and skill to make these clothes. This was not something that they just threw together. This was fine twined linen. I mean, this required effort. These were the clothes that God said, whenever they are anointed, ordained, and consecrated for God's work, they're going to be in these clothes. Those things are going to happen. We're going to cover that whole process next week. And so it's a pretty exciting chapter. Let's finish it off. Verse 42. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting and when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they should bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So finally, we read that everyone that is doing the work before the Lord, all of these guys would essentially have pants or shorts, right? Like, you know, from their hip to their thigh. So they were kind of like woven shorts, essentially, to cover their nakedness, to cover up their, their nakedness so that they would never be exposed. So even if they were in a bent position or even if they, you know, stumbled or anything like that, if their, if their robe came up or anything like that happened, they had something to cover their nakedness. Why? Well, remember what God had already said to Aaron, and now he's saying about all of them. If you don't wear these garments correctly, 
If you're not wearing everything properly and with reverence, you guys, you're going to die in your own guilt. This was not about them. It was about God working through them. The focus for ministry is always on God. And the reality is, is that what we see here is that God's saying, I don't want anything to be a distraction. Because process this thought. They bend over to get something and something flies up and there's a bunch of kids in there that are doing their thing or there's a bunch of ladies and they're like, whoa! That would be a distraction, wouldn't it? Even if it wasn't their fault, even if they weren't trying to be a distraction, they could be a distraction. But with this invention, this idea, there was no way they were going to be a distraction, right? They were covered in every possible way. There was nothing they needed to be concerned about. It was all focused on God. And I pray, you guys, that this is the heart of everyone here, that our focus at Awaken Great Bay is to glorify God and make Jesus famous. That we're not trying to be a distraction, that we're not getting in the way of that. I don't want for anyone to have their nakedness exposed or any of those things. And I'm not talking about physical nakedness. You all get that, right? If you've ever been in churches, or if you've been in churches long enough, you see those people that it seems pretty obvious they're there because they want to make a scene, right? I was part of certain charismatic churches where we had this lady that would always show up in a white leotard, and she would have this humongous, humongous white flag. Like, it would make college football teams jealous, this thing was so big. And one time, the first time she showed up, she stood right in the front and it was going, and I was on the drums, and it was so big that the entire congregation would disappear. This is a church of 4,000. And so it would, this flag was huge, and she's up in the front, and guess what? That quickly ended, because the ushers came forward and like, no, this is not what we're here for. What are you doing? And sent her to the back. Listen, we're not here to be a distraction. When everybody's pointing and laughing, that's not a good sign. That's why I always say, even on thirst nights, right? Man, if you want to do cartwheels, do them in the back. I'm not against the moving in the spirit. What I am against is being a distraction. I want our nakedness and our distraction, you guys, to be covered. And how, would, how do we get there? By each of us seeking the Lord. So, you guys, in conclusion, here's the deal. My encouragement is for all of us to take this chapter, and I would encourage you guys, go back and reread it. And I want you to think about this. I want you to contrast all the finery and the beauty of what was put on these human, flawed people and how much God used them and used the high priests and used all of the situation that he set up in the Old Testament for his glory. I want you to think about all that. And he was using all of this, by the way, to point out everyone to the fact that we were eventually going to have a high priest. But I want you to think about this. Before Jesus got where he is now, up in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, he was on the cross. How was he dressed there? Taking all of his, our sin on himself. Naked, essentially if not completely, because what do we know? They took at least the mass majority of his clothing and possibly all of it. 
So here, there he was on the cross. And I want you to contrast those two things. Just to kind of let it sink in how much Jesus did for us. But now I want you to think about this to finally close it out. And this is my encouragement. This is a thing that was just exciting to me as I studied this chapter. And that is this, you guys, is that as beautiful as the high priest was, as beautiful as the outfit that the high priest wore, all of that, you guys, doesn't hold a candle to how amazing Jesus is going to look when we get to heaven and when we see him face to face in heaven. His glorified self is going to be, it's going to blow away the best high priest, the most handsome guy with the best and most cleanest outfit. No, Jesus is better. I hope this blessed you guys as much as it's blessed me. And yes, I know, I know some of you guys are like, man, I I wish you would have talked about this. And I'm always leaving stuff on the cutting room floor, so to speak, because this book is so rich, you guys, that we could cover every chapter or most of these chapters, probably two or three weeks each. And for the sake of everyone's sanity, we're not going to. (laughs) But I would also encourage you, dig in. There's a lot more here. If you have questions, please come ask them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that as we look at these things and as we understand a little bit more, Lord, about your pattern and why you have done back in the past what you've done, Lord God, and what it means for us today. Father, I pray that I can't ask, Lord God, well, I can, I guess, but Lord, I'm a, I will ask, Lord, you're a big enough God that I know you hear this, but God, it seems like a ridiculous request on my end. Father, would you teach each and every Christian, Lord, to see their pastor the way they're supposed to? God, that they would understand that we are all human, flawed people that are not deserving of a pedestal or any other thing. And yet, Lord, I also pray, Father, that your church would understand the calling that you've put on people's lives and the office of these churches, Lord, to be the under-shepherd God and what that means and how that works out and what all that looks like, Lord God. And Father, now I, I pray, Father, for myself and Father, for every other person that you've called, Lord God, would you help us to live in a way, Lord, that brings honor and glory and respect to your name, God. Father, that we would not be guilty of the things, Lord, that unfortunately so many pastors nowadays are falling into sexual temptation, God, or embezzlement, or all these other things, Lord, that are just so wrong, Lord. And God, just bring just a black eye to your name, Father. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you are not ever shamed or less glorified or glorious than you actually are. Lord, you are God and we are not. But God, help us as your people, to be a people, God, that are after you and, Lord, are are walking as much as we can in humility, Lord God, and trying our best, Lord, to serve you well, Lord, and to represent you well in this world, Lord God. And, Father, I thank you, Lord, that it's not just us, God. We know, Lord, it's not just pastors, Lord. Your word makes it clear in 1 Peter, Lord God, that we are a royal priesthood. Lord, we are all called. We are all called to go out into this world and to make disciples. It's not one person. Help us, God. Help us, Lord. God, we don't have a turban with a gold band that says holy to the Lord, but God, I pray spiritually, Lord God, that we would realize every morning when we wake up, Father, that you would 
remind us again, Lord God, that you are purifying us, God. Lord, that you are guiding us, Father. Lord, that you want us to walk this life out set apart from the world around us. Help us to see that more clearly, Lord. Help us to walk it out, Lord, to be a clearer reflection of who you are, Lord. Move in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.